0: Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Proximo Podcast. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, reporting to you from London. Today, I am delighted to be joined on the podcast by Nicholas Beattie, Founder-Director at Zenobi Energy. Established in 2017, Zenobi Energy is one of the leading owners and operators of battery storage in the UK. The company has raised over £300 million into its business and has a 25% share of the UK's e-bus market. With approximately 225 megawatts of batteries in operation or construction, the company is also supporting National Grid with the uptake of renewable power. Nicholas is one of the founders of Zenobi. Prior to joining Zenobi, Nicholas spent 28 years in corporate finance, advising a wide range of businesses and financial investors, assisting them to raise debt and equity capital, and advising on mergers and acquisitions and listings in the UK and overseas. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Not a problem, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Thank you very much. And if I just start with a fairly sort of general kind of background question looking at Zenobi, I mean, could you tell me a bit about Zenobi Energy's work in the e-mobility and storage sectors, generally speaking?
1: Yes. Um, so as you as you said, um, Zenobi Energy was founded in 2017. We actually started as a business that was going to be focused on Uh, stationary batteries, providing services to national grid and the district network operators. Um, Originally our key area of expertise was providing batteries that could give balancing services to national grid, so that meant keeping supply and demand of electricity in balance and keeping the frequencies around about 50 hertz in the UK, and also providing power services. However, In 2017, very quickly after we actually started the business, we could see that the uh, value of the contracts with National Grid uh, declined quite substantially, or were declining quite substantially. So we looked at other areas where we could use our expertise, or particularly the software that we were developing to optimize the use of the batteries, and that software continues to be developed by us and, and provides barrier of entry relative to our competitors. Um, but also the knowledge that we had of battery suppliers and the integration of batteries with inverters and so on in order to be able to provide a better product and better services. And the area that we began to focus on, um, because we could see they had significant issues, um, was the supply of uh, electric uh, vehicles, uh, particularly into the bus sector. So the bus operators had gone from having diesel to diesel hybrid And we're now having to adopt zero emission vehicles. And as I said, electric have obviously been the major part of that portfolio. And they had two real areas of problems. First of all, there wasn't enough power that was available to them in the depots um, for them to be able to support the vehicles that they were acquiring. So as an example, on our first contract, uh, Stagecoach had bought nine vehicles uh, which between them had three megawatt hours of batteries that needed to be charged. And they only had a 200 kilowatt feed into that particular depot. So we put a stationary battery in place and we were able to shift that power in such a way that when the vehicles were out during the day, we could charge that stationary Tesla battery up. And then at night, when the vehicles came back, the first two or three could be charged off the grid. But when you put the fourth vehicle onto the charging, there wasn't enough power available to ensure that it would be charged by the next morning, and that's when our software kicked in and supplied the energy to the vehicle to ensure that it was provided uh, with sufficient energy to be charged up to the right level to go and do the route the next day. That was our first example of of something that we did. The cost of that was roughly 20%, and we supplied that and the charging and infrastructure and design and everything else at about 20% of the cost of, of the potential upgrade that the DNO would have uh, asked for if they'd increased the amount of energy into the depot from 200 to 500 kilowatts. And we have did that as our first project. And now we've got 20 live sites in the UK. We've just announced our first site in Australia And we're also going live in in New Zealand, as well as looking across Northwest Europe being taken by our customers, the major uh, bus operators um, in the UK into their markets in Northwest Europe and also into North America. The other thing that we also saw was that the vehicle um, operators found that the cost of the electric buses, which was roughly twice the cost of the diesel equivalent, was making it very difficult for them to move to the electric vehicles. So what we saw was that, for instance, an electric bus was basically split into two parts, one of which is the battery, and the other of which is the chassis. We're a battery company, so we were very focused on being able to finance that battery. Um, I've talked about the infrastructure already, but we could finance the battery and provide that battery as well as the infrastructure as a service. That meant in both cases we could take those assets off the balance sheet of our customers and hold them on the balance sheet of the SPVs that did that, and we could finance them very competitively by looking at receivable and asset financing. And we also provide the financing for the chassis as a as an operating lease. Um, so between. Those three contracts, we were able to provide economic financing, a technical solution that met customers' requirements. And as I said, we've grown the business um, subsequent to that.
0: Thanks very much, Nicholas. And I'm just I'm very interested in a particular point that you just kind of, sort of started to mention towards the end of your response there in terms of your interaction with the operators of the bus service. I understand that a kind of lease model is, is used in that instance. And I wondered what advantages you thought the leasing model had for e-bus development?
1: Yes. Yeah, so as, as I said, it was it was coincidental that we started providing these services to the the fleet operators at the same time as they were also wrestling with the issues that came from the changes in IFRS 16. Um, And as you're, I'm sure, well aware, the consequence of that was that they were having to look at operating leases, which was the way that they typically funded these vehicles in the past when they were diesel vehicles. um, And they were having to take those assets and the associated debt onto their balance sheet which was not terribly attractive, given that that's a relatively low margin business operating uh, buses. So as I said, we took um, a look at what was available um, in the market and we could see, and we discussed this with um, our accounting advisors at the time, we could see that if we crafted the contracts um, properly, then we could provide both the charging infrastructure and the battery on the bus as a service so we now do it as a managed service uh, with the with the software that we have um, to be able to regulate the charging at the charging service side and also to be able to monitor the battery on the bus um, as as that is operating so we could we have a, a an ability to be able to do asset monitoring while the vehicles are being operated um, and that was very attractive, and the consequence of that is that we've been able to use those as um, a managed service, and we, as I said, keep that on our balance sheet. The rest of the vehicle, which is the chassis, um, unfortunately it's, it's difficult for us to be able to uh, turn that into the service model, mainly because um, the vehicles are uh, difficult to actually uh, transfer between different operators, because they've got all the colour and and the um, branding that's associated with the original customer. So that's been quite difficult for us to do, although we are looking um, very closely at achieving that at the moment with one of our customers and taking the whole of the vehicle and the charging equipment into one availability contract, and we expect to be able to announce that soon. But at the moment, our main model has been, as I said, providing the battery on the bus as a service, and also the charging equipment as a service, and then the, the rest of the vehicle, the chassis, through this operating traditional operating lease uh, structure.
0: Thanks, Nicholas. And I understand that at times when you have the bus depot and the you know the charging infrastructure for the buses, sometimes you have a rather large battery at the bus depot, which is then charged up and then used to charge the buses in turn. And I wondered, you know, can those bus depot batteries assist with grid management?
1: Absolutely, Thomas. That's that's a very good point. So uh, as I mentioned, we've got two sides to our business, one of which is the large battery side where we've now um, got um, uh, 73 megawatts in operation. We're currently building another 100 megawatts and we're developing a further 70. So we're going to sort of 240, 250 megawatts. Um, in the UK. That large portfolio enables us to um, combine some of the smaller batteries that are stationary and in the depots into the contracts that we have with National Grid. There is a um, if, if you have too small a battery, you can't actually um, bid into the National Grid contracts because there's a, a requirement for the battery to be above a certain size, which changes over time. Um, So, because we already have a very large portfolio, we're continuing to develop that portfolio, we can basically take those uh, stationary batteries that we put into some of our depots, we don't need to put them into all the depots at the moment, but we put them into some of the depots. And when they are not providing a service to the fleet, i.e. when they're not being discharged at night to be able to um, support the charging of the fleet vehicles, that are say during the day when they're lying idle, we can then combine them um, into the contracts that we have on the other large portfolio of large batteries um, to enable us to generate additional income from those assets during the day by providing services to the national grid. And that's a very effective way for us to be able to reduce the overall cost of the battery and the charging infrastructure Uh, to our customers, because obviously we can offset the income that we generate by providing that service to National Grid to reduce the overall cost um, to the customer of having the large battery um, in the depot, providing the shifting that I described that we achieved at the uh, original um, Guildford contract.
0: Um, I understand that Zenobi Energy has recently closed the financing of an e-bus project in Sydney, could you tell me a bit about the project and the financing? I know you started to mention it a bit earlier.
1: Yes, absolutely. We're very excited by this. Um, we have done, as you said, the first, um, we just closed this actually about two weeks ago now, the first uh, electrification of a bus depot in Australia, um, which is at a depot called Leichhardt, based in, in Sydney. We've done that through a joint venture that we have with Transgrid, which is the... Um, District network operator, the provision of, of, of electricity for the uh, for New South Wales, um, and that um, project is for forty buses that are supplied to an operator called uh, Transit, which is part of the uh, C- ceiling Group. Um, and we've included not just the financing of the of the buses, but we've also included, as you've already mentioned, a stationary battery in that depot, which will enable us to load shift so that we can optimise the use of the electricity and make sure that it's, it's the cheapest electricity that we can provide uh, to the customer at that depot. We've also put a solar PV onto the roof for a 15 year period. So there's a decent tenor on that and that solar PV will be able to generate electricity which can be stored also in the battery to provide the energy um, overnight when the vehicles are charging. This is the first um, structured financing for um, EVs in Australia. Uh, It's 12-year fully amortizing senior debt, which we've been able to obtain from CEFC, uh, which is Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and it's the Australian government um, bank. And that's been secured only against the project cash flows. and has you know, good project finance levels of, of gearing and pricing. It's been quite a long, long haul because it's very innovative in its structuring. Um, and it's uh, not only obviously a project financing contract, but we've had to work very hard to ensure the commercial contracts and the operational standards meet local conditions. So as an example, obviously air conditioning is much more of an issue for vehicles in Australia and in Sydney than they are here in the UK. So things like that we've had to we've had to look at. Um, I mentioned the the batteries on the on the vehicles are 368 kilowatt hours and 422 kilowatt hour battery packs, and we've got fast charging infrastructure there um, with a stationary battery energy storage system of 25 megawatts or Uh, 4.9 megawatt hours um, in that depot to provide uh, the load shifting and the capability to ensure the buses will be charged um, under the contract uh, so that when they go out in the morning they'll be able to meet the requirements um, of the roof of of the sorry of, of the operation so our proprietary software brings all that together and will be responsible for ensuring that the um, charging of the vehicles is done dynamically that we'll be able to monitor through the telematics that we put on the vehicles, the buses, as they operate, so we can see how the battery on the bus is, is um, declining. I, it's, um, over a period of time, obviously, it, it, the, the, the ability to take charge declines as the, as the battery gets older and it degrades. And through that, we can we brought that entire service together to to do the first of one of these projects um, in
0: Australia. Thanks very much, Nicholas. And I'm actually just really interested in the point you've just mentioned there. You've sort of anticipated one of my further sort of questions. And that is, how does Zenobi Energy account for the limited lifespan of batteries at both depots and in buses when financing these assets with long-term debt? So
1: we we already are doing this, um, but we obviously first of all, we have a lot of reliance on the OEM warranties as our customers have, have done, so whether that be the batteries on the on the vehicle or the stationary batteries that we acquire from from the supplier, so we rely on those. Um, but I've also said you know we've got the software that we've developed here in the UK which allows us to uh, monitor the assets on a real-time basis and we can see how quickly they're degrading so we're taking um, many many data points of information on the on the battery on the bus and also the stationary battery um, in the depot so we can understand how the asset is degrading, what the state of charge is, what the temperature of the asset is and what the health of the battery is over a period of time now the onm warranties will um give you uh the idea of how long the battery for instance on the bus will last if it's doing the route and the great thing about bus batteries is that obviously each one of the buses in the depot are doing a relatively constant route because they're on whatever the route might be it might be 150 miles route doing route 101 or whatever it is uh, so we can see how the, the battery is going to uh decline, and we can predict that against the warranties that are provided by the OEM, um, and we monitor that. What happens, though, is that the battery will last normally between seven to eight years, and that's what the warranty shows us, as well as our own practical experience, and what we do is that once the battery no longer is able to provide the sufficient energy for the vehicle to do the route, we will get the OEM in to come in and replace the battery on the bus. Um, We then take that original battery and we put that into a Second Life application. Now we're already doing that. Um, So we integrate that battery through a partner that we have in Europe um, with other uh, inverters, with new inverters, and we can put that into a 40 foot or 20 foot container or whatever it is. Um, And then we can take that battery and use that in second life applications so that might be, for instance, a UPS for a factory that might be doing what we're doing with our other batteries, providing the balancing between uh, supply and demand, or it might be other applications, Um, but what is good for us and is two things first of all it enables us to ensure that the battery has a longer life than it might otherwise have so we're not after seven or eight years going into recycling the battery we've got a second life and potentially a third life use for it so that's good for the environment and that's good for us and the second part of it is that we can see that we have an additional life from that original battery in its second and third life application which effectively underpins the residual value that we put on that battery when we do the original calculations for the chargers, charging costs um, to our customer, um, because we can see that we have an additional, say, five years life from that battery, uh, which will generate a certain amount of income, and obviously we can discount that back, and that then um, gives us the um, valuation on the RV that we feel comfortable with. So it's it's a combination of a variety of things that helps us um, be able to offer to our customers um, costs which are competitive um, with people who've got much lower um, costs of capital than us. Um, but also it's not just a financing game, it's a game that includes uh, the technology on the software side, that includes our understanding of the batteries, because. We obviously are matching this up with how we're seeing grid scale batteries are operating. So we've got a better understanding of the battery market as a whole and um, how the degradation works. And we can back that in to these new um, contracts in order to feel comfortable with what we're offering the customer.
0: Yes, of course. And it's obviously incredibly exciting that you've just closed this financing I just wondered if you thought that the e-bus sector has become substantially de-risked for project finance lenders over the last few years, or if there are still some substantial risks kind of remaining that you need to navigate when moving into a financing like this one?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, this is an interesting question. Um, when we started, as I mentioned earlier, um, we started um, on the basis of doing receivable financing for the batteries on the, on the bus. Um, And we were doing some project financing for stationary batteries, um, as we had done on the on the large uh, batteries that we also own. So I think that, you know, what we're seeing is is if I look at the stationary batteries and that market, we're seeing that the banks are beginning to understand that market a lot more. Um, They obviously have to rely substantially on um, what the consultants, commercial consultants tell them the potential earning power of the batteries is because there's still quite a lot of merchant risk associated with providing the services to national grid um, and the services to the dnos and so on because those balancing contracts are very very short term but there are also larger uh, energy companies who are prepared to um, stand up and, and work with us to provide floors so we use that side of the market um, on those stationary batteries in order to be able to convert what looks like a, a very merchant asset across to actually having um, some um, flaws in place, which gives the banks considerably more comfort in how the, the batteries are being uh, financed from, from that point of view. So that's one way that is um, a, a way that the, the, the de-risking has taken place. As far as I think the batteries on on the vehicles are concerned. As I've mentioned, the banks um, are taking much more um, comfort from the OEM warranties. They also take considerable comfort from the fact that we are able to uh, monitor the assets while they're being used. So we get an asset monitoring capability, which is very different to, for instance, what they would have had um, in the past when they were just financing diesel vehicles, where they relied very heavily on the return conditions, obviously. That's being able to take data points on the principal asset, um, which is part of the bus, which is the battery, um, is very helpful for them to get comfortable um, with monitoring the area, which may be the thing which gives them more worries around risk. And because of that, I think we've been able to get um, more interest in doing a project-based financing for Um, the actual battery on the bus and and, and the bus itself and currently um, we are in the process of uh, raising over 100 million pounds through a term loan which will be um, we hope out to around about 15 years or so uh, where we're being advised by NatWest on that and a similar amount um, on on a capex facility so around about 120 million pounds for each of those different facilities and the feedback we've been having Through that process is that, um, you know, the the view of the the quality of the warranties, the quality of the way that we can actually monitor the assets and the contractual structure, things like termination and so on and so forth, are obviously extremely important components of that. But equally, things like the fact that the battery, sorry, a bus is much more of a transferable asset than, for instance, a train is, so, if you lose a contract in one area, you can move the vehicle then and put it out to rental somewhere else. I think that that has all helped uh, reduce the risks as far as the banks and the institutions are concerned, um, and de-risking the whole project finance approach to financing these assets.
0: That's very good to hear. I think that it is moving in that direction. And I just have one final question for you today, Nicholas. And this is if you thought that there were any key challenges remaining that are perhaps inhibiting the development of electric transport infrastructure, and if so, how these challenges might be overcome going forward?
1: Well, I mean, there are always, you know, this is a very new asset class. So I think that's the first thing. So there's always... you know, from a financing perspective, there are issues there, and hopefully I've given you some ideas as to how some of those issues are being addressed. I think that, you know, the the biggest um, factor, frankly, is that there is an enormous amount of capital that's required um, in order to, to meet the electrification or the transfer from where we are today to zero emissions. I mean, even in the UK, we're looking at sort of somewhere approaching... 40,000 buses in the UK and that's not, you know, 9,000 of those are in London and each of the vehicles is ending between 400 to 500,000 pounds. Well, you can see there's a lot of money that needs to go into that sector um, if that um, transfer from the current vehicles to across to zero emission vehicles is going to be successful. Also, as I'm sure you're well aware, um, the uh, whole Um, issue around Covid has has impacted the sector quite materially. Um, While the government doesn't have in this I'm talking about the UK doesn't have the requirements to support the industry in the way that it does have with the rolling stock or the rail industry Um, actually the government has been very supportive of um, the bus industry um, in in this country and it supported TFL um, who've been able to continue to provide uh, the payments to the operators even though the numbers of people traveling on vehicles um, went down to very low levels although i'm pleased to say that things are recovering again so the fare boxes are recovering which helps support all this so we've got you know issues like the the amount of costs that, that it's going to be the the um, COVID issue which we hope is now um, under control and then from sort of technical side we could see that um things like getting chargers to talk directly to vehicles is not a plug and play issue we find quite often that while the software is meant to meet certain um, international standards often the OEMs have have played around with the software and, and you can't just plug the the uh, charger into the vehicle and expect it to talk um, or t- the two assets to talk to one another so we spend quite a lot of time with our software for our team and our operations team overcoming issues in that area and then outside the bus industry obviously there's going to be considerable opportunity with um, particularly depot-based fleets now up until now um, there simply haven't been the vehicles available um, for the the major last mile delivery operators and major uh, delivery companies um, to accept because quite a lot of the vehicles that have been available have basically up till now been vehicles that have been manufactured by the large mass-produced vehicle manufacturers and then the diesel um, engine and components have been taken out of the vehicle and the electric motor and drive have been replaced by smaller companies well that isn't really acceptable to quite a lot of the customers that want to get into the electric vehicle commercial vehicle side because they need to have the warranties that are provided by large companies and they need to have all the um, mechanical support and so on to ensure that the vehicles will continue uh, to operate but now finally we're beginning to see for instance with Renault and the Volvo group very focused on electrics beginning to produce um, vehicles we're also seeing some challenges coming into the market much in the same way as Tesla did on the car side but you can see people like Volta and various other um, small truck manufacturers coming into the market um, which are going to be challenging the traditional uh, mass-produced vehicle manufacturers, and we're seeing acceptance in those areas, and Arrival, Arrival, sorry, here, um, obviously, uh, as another example. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, of challenges remaining. It's not uh, plain sailing by any manner of means to go from having an existing diesel fleet or diesel hybrid fleet and transferring it across to zero emissions. Um, but uh, there is a lot of interest and a lot of support from government to do this, and a lot of emphasis from government to, to spend money in this area and to support these developments. So I think we can see this as a part of the economy which is going to accelerate in order to meet the requirements of the likes of COP26 and so on.
0: Of course, and it has been fascinating to watch this sector sort of take off over the last few years. I'm afraid to say that that's all we have time for today. But Nicholas, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Well, Thomas, that was
1: thank you very much for having me, and I hope that gives you some and your uh, listeners some food for thought.
0: Yeah, great, thank you. It's it's been a really really interesting discussion. Um, thanks to everyone for listening, and be sure to join us again next week for more of your latest project finance, energy, and infrastructure news from Proximo.